are listening to Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode two, Ohio vs. McCarthyism. Uh, and again, Ohio v. the World, we are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. Uh, they have a history channel, whether it's our friend Richard Lim and his great show, This American President. Just did a great episode last month about President Garfield with our friend Todd Arrington from the Garfield History site up in Mentor, Ohio. Um, or Conflicted, Zach Cornwell's awesome show about historical conflicts. He goes all the way back to the olden days to the present. Uh, and again, really cool show, Conflicted. Uh, and go to evergreenpodcast.com. You can find this show, Ohio v. the World, uh, an American History Pod. Today we're talking about the McCarthy era, the Red Scare, and what happens when you criminalize speech, when you criminalize political thought. We'll talk about America's love affair with bullies. It seems every Republican presidential candidate that I can think of since 1932 has claimed that his presidential opponent is a communist, a socialist. It's not new, yet every four years, people buy into it. But the period we'll talk about today is a glimpse of that slippery slope we are on when it comes to this lack of due process that I see in this country. Being tried in the press, being tried on Twitter. There's innocent people that we still see as guilty in recent years because we don't follow the story after the accusation is made. We're on to the next one. You think about Richard Jewell in the Atlanta Olympics, the Duke lacrosse team. Everybody still thinks that they're guilty, convicted, locked away somewhere. Go watch the Central Park Five by Ken Burns, great documentary. All these stories I just mentioned, there's these great documentaries on all of them, but it's this race to judgment. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's opinion's out there, uh, no matter how misinformed it is. And today we'll look at the story of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. We'll go back 70 years, when 50% of the country was certain that the other 50% was a communist spy, or at least a sympathizer. And don't get me wrong, I'm a practicing capitalist. I believe in slightly regulated capitalism is the best possible system. But I also strongly believe in your rightness, American, to believe in whatever economic system or political system you wish. Today, we'll look at its effects on politics, the Red Scare, and life here in Ohio. We always use Ohio on this show. You wonder about the title if you're a new listener. Ohio is a microcosm in these episodes. It's an American history podcast, as you can tell from the new subtitle of the show, but there's always an Ohio connection in each episode because... There's almost always, it seems to be, an Ohio connection when you study American history. We'll look at how McCarthyism affected actual people. We'll drill down into those hearings uh, in front of what was called the Ohio Un-American Activities Committee, which were copying those Spanish Inquisition methods of the junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy. We're going to focus on his meteoric rise from 1950 to 1954. It's not that long ago when one demagogue fueled by lies, revenge, enabled by his political party, legitimized by mass media coverage, nearly took down the most sacred norms in American society. Freedom of speech, due process of law, and the freedom to think whatever the hell you want. It's episode two, Ohio vs. McCarthyism.
One of the most common themes you'll see in the rise of any demagogue is their use of fear. A fearful public is susceptible. Those of us who lived through the first few years after 9-11, we were all too willing to sacrifice some of our civil liberties when it came to our right to privacy um, because we were fearful. Some might say we never got those rights back. We accepted the militarization of local police forces out of fear or the government spying on its citizens and their electronic and digital communications. This episode, we're going to drop you into America 1950. Our time as the world's only superpower was a short one following World War II. The spread of communism, the rise of the Soviet Union brought panic to Americans. Our first guest is Greg Wilson, a professor of history at the University of Akron and a great Ohio historian. Greg's going to be on the show multiple times, I can see, in the years to come. He's the co-author of Ohio, A History of the Buckeye State, which is the ultimate book on Ohio history. Link in the show notes for that one. Co-authored that with Kevin Kern, a former guest, another Akron professor, uh, who did a great job on our McKinley season premiere last year. But in order to understand the fear in the minds of some Americans, the fear of communism in 1950, you have to understand the years leading up to it, 1948, 1949, and just how much was going on. Internationally, there's a lot going on that played into this. Um, we have in that in that whole era. First thing we have is in Czechoslovakia in February 1948. There's a major communist coup in that country, which puts you know the world on edge uh, about what communism is and it might be spreading, especially in Europe, given that this is post-war. There's the devastation that's already there from that. Um, and that helped lead to the creation of the Marshall Plan, which went forward uh, in the coming years to aid Europe with economic assistance, you know, industrial assistance. So the Marshall Plan was part aid, but also part uh, a way to stop communism from spreading even further. So you had that. 1949 is a big year. You have the division of Germany into East and West Germany. You have the creation of NATO that comes along with that. Um, also in that year, the Berlin blockade was over in 1949. That had actually started in 1948 as well. 1949 also saw the communists be victorious in the Chinese Civil War. Um, that's also the year that the USSR successfully detonated its first atomic weapon, which was actually a lot faster than experts had predicted. Uh, and then all of that is then feeding into that growing sense, right, of fear, concern that communism is spreading, that it's growing more powerful. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia has created an atomic explosion. Berlin, too, is the scene of smoldering communist unrest. With the Red Army conquering China, fear-ridden Shanghai crowds see nationalist soldiers vent their fury. Alger Hiss, former high state departmental official, is branded a communist spy by an American jury after a sensational trial. Another of the spy ring, Mrs. Ethel Rosenberg, who with her husband was convicted of actually transmitting the secrets to Russia through Soviet diplomatic channels. We'll just pick one of those stories that we just blitzed there in that, in that clip. The Rosenbergs. They're kind of, you know, the two birds with one stone when it comes to American fears. This young couple is arrested and charged with leaking technological secrets to the Soviets and big ones like the atom bomb, how to build one. You know, the Russians dropped their first bomb in 1949. It would be later found that Ethel was maybe not as involved as the prosecutors like Roy Cohn. Uh, don't worry, we'll get to him later. As much as prosecutors might have led us to believe. 
But the Rosenberg trial had it all. Spies, communists, nuclear secrets. There was a period from 1945 to 1949 where the U.S. was the only country with a nuclear bomb. And that comfort that we felt is shattered when the Soviets detonate their first nuke. And it's thought that they got that information thanks to a network run by the Rosenbergs. The Rosenbergs were both convicted in 1951 of conspiracy to commit espionage for the Soviet Union. Um, they provided information on radar, um, engine design, nuclear weapon design along those in those areas. And they were both executed at Sing Sing Prison, which is in New York, in 1953. Um, so a little background on them. They were both Jewish. They had met in New York um, at the Young Communist League. This was in the 1930s when communism had sort of regained some popularity yeah. due to the depression yeah, and the economic crisis. So um, Julius worked as an engineer. He worked for the army um, and then he later um, was fired from the army after they learned of his previous membership in the Communist Party. So he was involved in a lot of information dealing with electronics, missile control, things like that. Um, and his wife, of course, you know, um, was, uh, was not working, you know, for the army in that way, but she certainly helped him and, you know, uh, assisted him in a lot of his work and things like that. So um, as, as things move forward, Julius uh, was, was recruited to spy during World War II uh, for the Soviet Union. He passed information to them, again, on those areas, you know, with, with technology, electronics, things like that. Now, what Julius also did, apparently, was to recruit others, right, to also spy. And that's where he recruited his wife's brother, who was David Greenglass. Um, and David Greenglass was working on the Manhattan Project, and that's where that becomes involved in the story. Again, remember at the time during World War II, the U.S. and the Soviets are allies in the fight against Nazi Germany, but the United States was not sharing its information on nuclear programs with the Soviet Union. That was part of an agreement that the U.S. had with Britain to not share that information. So Greenglass essentially named his, his sister, Ethel. So that's how the Rosenbergs got, got caught up in the, in the investigations. Um, and eventually what happened at the trial for, for the, the Rosenbergs is that the FBI and the prosecutors really knew that Julius was the one they really wanted for his connections. Cohn becomes involved. Um, he becomes the key prosecutor at the Rosenbergs trial. So um, he then later became chief counsel for Joseph McCarthy. Cohn becomes famous for his involvement there. Our second guest today is author Larry Tai. Larry's amazing book from last summer, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Joseph McCarthy, uh, is the definitive book when it comes to the Red Scare uh, and this anti-communist movement stirred up by Joseph McCarthy. But Senator Joseph McCarthy in 1950 was going nowhere in his first term. He was an upset winner in his election over Robert La Follette. Uh, I guess that would have been the primary. But he had made no news in Washington since his arrival in 1947 as evidence where he found himself on the evening of February 9, 1950. He's on the banks of the Ohio River on the West Virginia side in Wheeling. He was there to speak at the Lincoln Day Dinner for the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling. As someone who's been to some Lincoln Day dinners in the past, seen major political figures give the keynote address, these are huge uh, dinners and fundraising opportunities in the Republican Party. 
The junior senator from Wisconsin is not high on the invite list. No offense to Wheeling, West Virginia, and my eastern Ohio friends, but it's just not the number one destination for a Republican senator. But history was changed that night in Wheeling. Our guest Larry Ty will talk to us about a speech made by a little-known senator in out-of-a-way town on the Ohio River, how that would change American history, even if the speech promoted one big lie. Yes, so we now know a number of things about what he did that night in Wheeling. And number one, it's pretty clear that he was on his way to being a one-term senator and a senator nobody would ever remember. Um, And that was why he went to Wheeling with this sense that he had to do something to get attention. And it was not something that he had scoped out clearly as reflected in the fact that he brought with him to Wheeling two speeches. Right. In his briefcase, the first speech was a snoozer of a speech on national housing policy. And if he had delivered that speech that night, 70 years later, I can guarantee you we wouldn't be here talking about Joe McCarthy because nobody would have remembered him. Instead, he reached deeper into his briefcase. He pulled out a speech. And I had the luck of having had his family give me the first ever access to all of his papers, his personal and professional papers. And I saw draft after draft of that speech. And one thing we know for sure is that he did not, as he said that night, have in his hand a list of 205 spies at the US State Department. Um, He could as easily have had in his hand uh, his wife's grocery list. (laughs) It was clearly something that was recycled information. Um, He didn't know how many of the people that he was thinking about were still working at the State Department. He really had no idea. What he did have is a notion that uh, it was important to say something that night that was going to get attention when he charged, not just that there were a vague number of unnamed spies, but that he could put a number to it and said that he had the names, it was irresistible to the press. And within two days, he was on page one of every newspaper in America. And for the next four and a half years, he never looked back. McCarthy and his claim of having a list of 205 communist spies in the State Department becomes the biggest story in the country. He promises to share the names in due time, but it's all BS. There's no list. There's not 205 Communist Party members in the U.S. State Department. The media presses him on it, and he promises, I'm going to bring them all down, expose the whole lot of them. The big lie is born. There were senators that tried to put a stop to McCarthy right then and there, led by the only woman in the Senate, Maine Republican Margaret Chase Smith, a true profile in courage. On June 1, 1950, the only woman at the time to serve in both houses of Congress delivered a speech against her fellow Republican McCarthy. The speech is called a Declaration of Conscience, and it's a shame it didn't put a stop to McCarthyism right there. Look up the speech. It warns about every bad thing that would come from McCarthyism. And it's a speech that I wish was much more well-known in American history because it holds up today, and it speaks to the turmoil that we're experiencing now. Margaret Chase Smith was the only woman in the U.S. Senate, and she was a pal of Joe McCarthy's, but she was so outraged uh, by what he turned up, the, the speech from Wheeling, 
And she was so dismayed that anytime anybody asked him about this, that he would hem and haw and show her and others what he said was evidence and what they said did nothing to prove his charges. She was upset enough that she delivered in the Senate chamber a speech that she called a declaration of conscience. And she and six fellow moderate Republicans basically stood up and said what Joe McCarthy did, his reckless accusations, his guilt by association was un-American and it was unacceptable even to fellow Republicans like her. And for her troubles, Joe McCarthy did what he always did, which is he came up with a, an irresistible name to call her. He said that she and her fellow moderates were Snow White and her six dwarfs. <laughs> he went after her politically and tried to unseat her in a primary. And if any of this has any resonance to today, if it sounds familiar, it's not accidental. And he basically did everything he could to take revenge on her, including getting her kicked off of the important subcommittee where he was the ranking Republican. And he was sending a message, not just to Smith, but to any Senator with what he felt was the chutzpah to take him on. And that message was very simple. It was beware of my battering ram because I'm coming after you. That important subcommittee was the Senate Committee on Investigation. It's from this committee that McCarthy would wreak havoc on American government. The most notable committee tracking communists and subversives up until this time was HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities Committee. He had a Californian congressman named Richard Nixon made his name as a member of HUAC. They're investigating and blacklisting Hollywood actors and writers and directors. There was the explosive investigation into Alger Hiss, a State Department bigwig that ended up being found guilty of perjury and considered by many to be a communist spy. HUAC would take a back seat to McCarthy's Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations come the 1950s. But it was the Tidings Committee and Senator Millard Tidings that was tasked with investigating McCarthy's first set of outlandish accusations. McCarthy accused diplomats like Philip Jessup, Owen Lattimore, being pro-communist. It ruined their careers, and the rivalry between Senator Tidings and Joseph McCarthy would boil over too. Larry Tide tells us about the cautionary tale of Senator Millard Tidings. So unlike with Margaret Chase Smith, when he would take her on in a primary, but she would win, he took on the powerful Maryland Senator Millard Tidings, who was the first one to say, Joe McCarthy, you're a fraud and your charges are a hoax. And for his troubles, Tidings faced a know-nothing Republican um, in November. And this know-nothing Republican named Butler was financed by Joe McCarthy's wealthy Texas oilman friends. Uh, Joe McCarthy lent him his campaign manager and his bag of dirty tricks. Tidings went down to a shocking defeat, which sent the message, I'm not just going to threaten to take you on, I'm going to bring you down. And that was the message that other Democrats heard loud and clear. And thankfully that Margaret Chase Smith um, was strong enough to withstand. There's a moderate female uh, Republican senator from Maine today. It's her name's Susan Collins. And Larry Tide talks about Senator Collins and how she decided that Americans should be able to see the transcript of those closed-door hearings with Joseph McCarthy. These hearings were stuff of legend. Screaming matches, accusations flying from McCarthy's lips and back from his poor subjects, 
and the suspected pinkos, as he called them. Larry's book, uh, Demagogue, was one of the first publications that really delved into these secret hearings of the Senate Committee on Investigations that were released by Susan Collins in 2003. They revealed something else that was a well-known secret at the time, that Joseph McCarthy was an alcoholic, and he was an angry drunk. Susan Collins took Margaret Chase Smith as her mentor and as her role model in the Senate, and I thought what that meant was that Collins would end up standing up to the president um, in the way that Margaret Chase Smith had stood up to Joe McCarthy, and that didn't quite happen, but she did understand Joe McCarthy's lesson, Susan Collins did, and Susan Collins ended up holding the same gavel, the chairmanship of the permanent subcommittee of investigations in the Senate that Joe McCarthy had held and wrecked his damage from. And she ended up half a century later deciding that the public ought to get to see all the closed door hearing transcripts, 9,000 pages of them that showed just what a bully Joe McCarthy was. And I want to just say one other quick thing. Those hearing transcripts also showed something else that I found fascinating. They showed that if you went up against Joe McCarthy in his hearings in the morning when he was cold stone sober, that it wasn't easy. But if you went up against him in the afternoon after he'd had his trademark lunch of a hamburger, a raw onion, and lots of whiskey, woe be gone to you. The, the chance of him getting angry and really attacking you, um, it wasn't a chance, it was almost a certainty. And we saw that McCarthy was a nasty guy to begin with, but his nastiness was well lubricated by his alcohol. Well, then let's continue to read your own writings. And 21 years ago again, Mr. Chairman, uh, two weeks ago, Senator Taft took the position that I took 21 years ago, that communists and socialists should be allowed to teach in the schools. I don't recall Senator Taft ever having any of the background that you've got, sir. Uh. I resent the tone of this inquiry very much, Mr. Chairman. I resent it not only because it is my neck, my public neck, that you are, I think, very skillfully trying to wring, But I say it because there are thousands of able and loyal employees in the federal government of the United States. Interrogation you heard by Joseph McCarthy of author and government official Reed Harris before the Committee on Investigations. That would lead to Harris's resignation from the government. And that's how almost all these hearings would end, in a resignation. Harris brings up the most powerful Republican senator at the time, Cincinnati's Robert Taft, son of our 27th president, His life and near ascension to the presidency will be discussed in a future season of this show, but McCarthy would not have been able to reach the heights of power he did without being enabled by his fellow Republicans. Mr. Republican, as Senator Taft was known, was not a fan of McCarthy, but he never put a stop to it. Demagogues like McCarthy can grab the power they desire, then they have to be enabled by their political allies. And Larry Tye talks to us about the role of Robert Taft, who he calls McCarthy's chief enabler. Mr. Republican, Mr. Ohio, Taft, as you know, uh, meant as much to Ohioans as the Kennedy name did in my native Massachusetts. Taft understood just who McCarthy was and what he was doing. And he confided to one friend that McCarthy, and I quote, doesn't check his statements very carefully and isn't 
disposed to take any advice. So it makes him a hard man for anybody to work with or restrain. To others, he called what McCarthy was doing perfectly reckless and said that Joe had made allegations which are impossible to prove, but which may be embarrassing before we get through. But that was what he was telling his pals. What he was telling the public was, Joe McCarthy is a good guy, listen to him, take seriously his charges, and he became McCarthy's chief Senate enabler during a period where he was one of the few senators with a political clout and with the wisdom that he could easily have taken him on and brought him down before McCarthy became the real threat that he was, went on to become. Robert Taft's Cincinnati, Ohio was a conservative stronghold at this time. The Cincinnati Inquirer had an expose in 1950 of the Democratic Party apparatus in Hamilton County, Ohio, which they claimed the party leaders were in fact communists. They had invited HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, to come to Cincinnati to investigate Cincinnati Democrats. And since he was a bigger city back then than Atlanta, Seattle, Dallas, Denver even, and so caught up in the Red Scare was the Queen City that we asked Ohio historian Greg Wilson if the Cincinnati Reds baseball team actually changed their name during the McCarthy era. The Reds did change their name during the Red Scare to the Red Legs, and they were the Red Legs uh, from 1950, about 1953 through about 1958. So if you look at, you know, any memorabilia from that era, you'll see it was the Cincinnati Red Legs, not the Reds, and they changed their uniforms as well. And once the once the McCarthyism scare had finished, they went back to becoming the Reds. It reminds me, you know, of all those those things that happened during World War One too, when they changed, you know, sauerkraut right to Liberty Cabbage and things like that. So, so yeah, it's, it's Free, just freedom fries. Freedom fries, yeah. So the Reds didn't want to, and and being in Cincinnati, you know, one of the one of the centers of of so much of this this Red Scare was in Cincinnati, and so I think they were part of that whole right effort to to get rid of communism in Cincinnati. So. a movement to start the Ohio Un-American Activities Committee and the Ohio General Assembly began. The perceived success of HUAC and Senator McCarthy's hearings prompted Ohio lawmakers to create their own Committee on Un-American Activities, whatever that is. Greg Wilson points out that in, you know, June 1950 also, the Korean War starts, a war against communist aggression by North Korea when it invaded South Korea, a war against communism that would cost 40,000 American lives. OUAC is formed and begins their inquisitions in 1951 and would have a profound effect on the state and its laws about political speech and political affiliations. The OUAC, the Ohio Un-American Activities, uh, was part of, a, I guess, a larger trend across a lot of states. You know, once HUAC had been going and once the, the Red Scare begins to accelerate, there's a growing desire to create state versions of these these committees. So Ohio's is created in June of 1951. 
and they hold hearings, um, two sessions, uh, 50, 52, and then 51, 52. And then again, they come back for a second round and they hold another set of hearings in 1953 to 54. And so there was a growing uh, push to create this. And it's really driven by a lot of the events you know, that are going on, the, you know, the fall of China, right? Um, the explosion of the atomic weapons. But I think to me, the biggest uh, push to create it came when the Korean War began in the summer of 1950. I think that seemed to indicate to the conservatives who were really driving this, that the real need to stop communism now was, was not just you know, a, a parlor game, if you will, right? It wasn't abstract. HUAC was doing work, but now with the Korean War, there's a real sense now that the United States is at war with communism. And so that really, I think, was a huge drive to getting uh, the Ohio Commission established in 1951. Greg Wilson talks with us about how OUAC, the Ohio Un-American Activities Committee, how it worked. Committee members traveled the state investigating subversives and communist activity in the Buckeye State. The Red Scare in communism is the number one issue in America, and Ohio is no different. As we're always the microcosm, so goes Ohio, so goes the nation. The OUAC basically didn't stay in Columbus. They started there. But what happened is as they began investigating, they began to call witnesses who were reporting on communist activities around the state. So eventually what, what the committee does is go and visit the major cities in Ohio. So they were in Cleveland, Cincinnati, uh, Akron, Canton, so uh, Dayton, around all around the state. And again, focus mainly on urban areas. That's where communist activity was probably most, uh, you know, mostly seen. And so that's where they went. Of course, that's also the places where Ohio's really strong manufacturing base was, all of them big, big industries. So that meant that a lot of the committee's activity focused on unions as well. As the Cold War ramps up, Joseph Stalin and his millions of followers had draped the Iron Curtain across Europe. Countries were falling in Asia to communism. Joseph McCarthy is just about the most famous and notorious man in the country. He's loved by the right, despised by the left. The battle, as it so often is in this country, is for that middle, that nonpartisan independent. McCarthy is winning over converts every day. His investigations and his rise to power is aided by his Robin to his Batman. That was his lead counsel, Roy Cohn. We mentioned Cohn earlier as the New York prosecutor that helped execute the Rosenbergs. Roy Cohn is McCarthy's right-hand man, and he would lead these investigations, you know, the hearings, when McCarthy was absent. And he really was the man behind McCarthyism. This was a time when we were petrified of the Soviet Union. And in that context, Joe McCarthy was offering us a really tempting answer. The problem was less the Soviets uh, over there. The problem was that they had spies in our own State Department, in our White House, across our government. And Joe McCarthy, when he took over the chairmanship, when Dwight Eisenhower was elected president, and there was a huge Republican sweep, and Joe McCarthy took over the chairmanship of his powerful subcommittee, he knew he, knew he needed a smart, young chief counsel. And he had thought about hiring Bobby Kennedy for that job. And instead, he brought Bobby in on the number two job. And we can only imagine whether Joe McCarthy might have been different had Bobby Kennedy been pulling his strings. But instead, McCarthy went to New York. He hired a brilliant, arrogant, 
young lawyer named Roy Marcus Cohn, who had a track record of having prosecuted communists. And Cohn came in and reinforced every bad instinct in Joe McCarthy's yeah. bones. He was as reckless as McCarthy, and he gave him the supposed evidence, which was not real evidence, to continue his crusade against communism. It wasn't just communists that McCarthy and Roy Cohn set their sights on. One group that was constantly under attack at these hearings was the gay community. Living in the shadows, then, very few people were out at that point. McCarthy's reasoning for these investigations into gays in government was that a homosexual person was susceptible to blackmail, to hide their sexuality. And if you were gay and in a government position, then the communists could and they would flip you. And thus, you needed to be outed and forced from the U.S. government. McCarthy also despised Jewish people. He's anti-Semitic to his core. Uh, he attacked American Jews with the same vitriol that he attacked supposed communists. Larry Ty talks about these two groups of Americans who experienced the ruthlessness of McCarthyism as it ruined all of their lives as well. So there were two other groups, most notably, that McCarthy targeted. One was gays, and it was known at that time as the Lavender Scare. And basically what he was saying is that if you were homosexual, and if you were in the U.S. government, that you were subject to blackmail by the Russians. Now, the irony is, if anybody in our government was subject to blackmail, it was Joe McCarthy, who had a gambling habit, who may or may not have been gay himself. There were lots of charges that the FBI investigated. But Joe McCarthy had a lot that he wanted covered up in his own background, and yet it was a convenient target because nobody was going to stand up in those days and defend his gay bashing. Yeah. And the other group that he went after was American Jews. And he started out, even before he had launched his anti-communist crusade, he defended the perpetrators of the most uh, vicious massacre of American soldiers during World War II, something known as the Malmedy Massacre. American soldiers had held up white flags. The Nazi panzer unit during the early stage of the Battle of the Bulge had mowed them down. And the only one who defended during the Nuremberg trials, the perpetrators of that massacre was Joe McCarthy. And he attacked what he said was the overly zealous Jewish prosecutors. And that became a pattern, a pattern where he would refer to Jews as hebes and sheenies, two slur words, and a pattern where he explained to his friends why he hired the Jewish lawyer Roy Cohn, saying that the Anti-Defamation League was attacking him for being an anti-Semite. So hiring a Jewish lawyer gave him some protection. The most popular political figure in the 1950s was President Dwight D. Eisenhower, the war hero of D-Day, the moderate Republican 34th president. Larry's excellent book, Demagogue, from last year, 2020, looks at the complex relationship between McCarthy and Eisenhower. They did not get along. But Ike was guilty of not standing up to McCarthy during the campaign in 1952. That would lead to an irreparable rift between him and Harry Truman, the outgoing president. And Ike continues to ignore McCarthy during his first term. We asked Larry why he calls President Eisenhower the enabler-in-chief. During the campaign, um, Joe McCarthy had attacked, this is the campaign for president in 1952, and right. Joe McCarthy had attacked Dwight Eisenhower's buddy, the incredible hero, General George C. Marshall, one of the architects of our victory during World War II. 
the McCarthy had scandalously attacked him as essentially a traitor. And Eisenhower had during the campaign a speech that he was going to read defending Marshall, going after McCarthy. But Eisenhower's aide said, don't do it. We might need Wisconsin and McCarthy's delegates for the nomination. And if we don't need them for the nomination, we'll certainly need Wisconsin in the election in November. Well, it turned out they didn't need the delegates for the nomination. They didn't need Wisconsin to win. They won in a landslide. And Eisenhower was, I think, forever uh, embarrassed by what he did. And yet when he took office, Ike's brother, who was um, Milton Eisenhower, from moment one, Milton whispered in Dwight's ear saying, give up some of your popularity, take on that demagogue and bully McCarthy, and Eisenhower wouldn't do it. Eisenhower said McCarthy's got to do himself in, and the year and a half that he waited to go after McCarthy, lives were ruined, careers were ended, and several people, including two U.S. senators, actually took their own lives after Joe McCarthy went after them. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll have to read Larry's book for those stories about senators taking their own lives because of McCarthy. It was certainly the case in the death of Wyoming Senator Lester C. Hunt in 1954. McCarthy's tactics and McCarthyism had actual consequences. These people's lives and reputations were not just ruined for allegedly believing in an unpopular political theory, but many were jailed for their political thought, their political speech. That happened to dozens and dozens of Ohioans as well. And that's thanks to the work of the Ohio Un-American Activities Committee. We talk with Greg Wilson about the process of being criminalized by OUAC. The committee, over its two-year sessions, two sessions, it called 53 witnesses, and it ended up citing for contempt 44 of those people. Um, most of those people refused to answer the committee's questions. Um, usually the committee would ask them if they are members or have been members of the Communist Party. Um, and then the, the witness would refuse to answer. 
And then what would happen is the, the committee would then just go on and ask all of these questions, list putting them into the record, but of course there were no answers for those questions. So it's a, it's a, it's a way to put what they would call facts into the record disguised as questions, even though the person who was being asked would not be answering any of those questions. Invoking a constitutional right, the Fifth Amendment from the Bill of Rights was a jailable offense in the 1950s. We asked Greg Wilson, a historian and professor from the University of Akron, just how the hell was this possible in Ohio and across the country? 44 people were, were charged with contempt of the committee for refusing to answer questions. And what they would often do was cite the, the Fifth Amendment right to, to, for self-incrimination. Uh, so they were deemed hostile witnesses to the committee. Um, and they were cited for contempt. And that would usually result in, in a fine and then possibly, uh, possibly jail time. But again, you know, to admit to being a communist in 1952, you know, before a committee, you know, you could risk prosecution under federal law, right? You had uh, the McCarran Act, which was passed in 1950, requiring organizations to register with the government. Um, the Smith Act, which went even earlier, that was from 1940. Uh, the Smith Act made it a crime uh, to advocate you know, overthrow of the government or belong to a group that supposedly was advocating a government. So basically, if they if they admitted to this, you know, they could face not just state, but also federal charges. So many of the, the witnesses who had been or, or maybe even still were communists in 1952, they refused to answer because of that. But don't you and think we're not, we're not myself on the Constitution obligates me to say a word or two about the origins of this? I am a student of American history and Mr. have been Glass, for many years. Uh, you're ordered to answer the questions only. We're not going to take a lecture from a man who refuses to state whether he's a member of the Communist Party as of this moment. We're not going to take a lecture from him on the Constitution of the United States. Let the record show that the witness has raised his voice in contempt of the Committee of Congress. I must refuse to answer that question, basing my refusal upon the privilege granted to me in the Fifth Amendment. And in line with your word, sir, I wish you would allow me to spell out that privilege and what it means. And why I am evoking it. No, I don't think everyone in this room knows this. Very few people know this. That was the testimony of author Howard Fast before Senator McCarthy. Fast was the author of Spartacus. As he's trying to invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege, he actually began writing Spartacus in jail during his three-month prison sentence for contempt of Congress. Our guest, Larry Ty, was a writer at the Boston Globe for 15 years. He's a journalist at heart, and he details how McCarthy was able to use the national press and how the national press kept feeding the Red Scare because it sold copies. The press didn't give him the most favorable coverage of all time, and McCarthy derides the liberal press, the fake news of its day, but he doesn't really care what it says as long as he's on the front page. Larry talks about how McCarthy skillfully played the national press. So I'm an old newspaper reporter, and right. I know full well that the thing that matters most to every newspaper reporter is being what we used to call in the old days where print was the only thing being on page one or today being the lead story on whatever website the, uh, that you want to be on. And Joe McCarthy put those reporters on page one more than any political figure in America, including even the presidents that he served under. His charges were generally 
given to the press at the last minute so they would have no time to get a response for the next day's paper. So Joe McCarthy attacks Owen Lattimore, would, a State Department guy, yeah. would be on page one. And the response from Lattimore would be on page two next to the corset ads, you know, in the next day's paper. And it was this unwritten agreement. Reporters didn't care whether Joe McCarthy called them bad names. He cared whether they gave these reporters great copy. And nobody understood that better, the way to put himself on page one and the way to sate the appetite of reporters than Joe McCarthy. It wasn't just hearings and persecution in Ohio. The legislature here actually passed a number of laws, too, in 1953. These new laws quite simply outlawed political thought, made it illegal to claim your constitutional rights, and made political affiliations illegal as well. Greg Wilson walks us through these three staggeringly repressive laws passed in the Buckeye State to criminalize communism. Again, these laws were used in the 50s to criminalize communism, but the lesson is for any political idea. This can happen when we become so fearful, so polarized, that our representatives think these kind of laws are good and will garner your support. And again, this is less than 70 years ago. So after, um, after all of the work that the, the committee did in, in calling people, right, getting names, trying to ferret out, you know, wherever communists may, may be, the, the legislature proposed three major laws in 1953. Um, one of them was to, to dismiss any public employee or teacher who was affiliated with the Communist Party or a subversive organization. That law went through and, and passed and was signed by the governor, uh, Governor Lauschi. Uh, another law um, made it so that a state employee could be dismissed uh, for refusing to testify uh, before the agencies like the OUAC or any others. That law also was approved and uh, by the governor and went forward. Now, the third one was more controversial. It made it a criminal offense to be a member of or commit to be a member of uh, a subversive act, act uh, a group uh, committed to the overthrow of the United States or committed to even alteration of the U.S. government, which is a very broad phrase, altering yeah. the government. Um, that provided jail terms and fines. That law was did get approved by the legislature, but it was one that Governor Frank Lauschi actually vetoed. This was the only one he vetoed. And the legislature ended up overturning his veto um, and went and that went forward to become law. It also created a, a special attorney general to continue the work of the committee, which ended in, in 1953. We were intrigued by the story of Anna Morgan, whose life was ruined thanks to the Ohio Un-American Activities Committee and these new laws. Anna Morgan was a Communist Party member here in Columbus uh, in the 1940s, 1950s. She ran a bookstore at 30 East Goodale, uh, which is where the convention center is now, short north, downtown Columbus. Her husband, Richard Morgan, an archaeologist and was the lead curator of the Ohio Historical and Archaeological Society. That's the same organization I sit on the board of trustees today, now known as the Ohio History Connection. But Anna was called before the OUAC and she gave them nothing. But she did make a really excellent opening statement before refusing to answer her questions. And we'll have her lawyer read some of those quotes uh, that she made to the OUAC. But Anna was a woman activist in the 1950s. We talk with Greg Wilson about Anna Morgan and how rare she was 
in the 1950s era of conformity and traditional gender roles. To me, what's really interesting about the hearings is just we got to put that in the context of the 1950s Cold War era when, you know, it was the so-called silent generation. Norms of behavior, uh, all of those things were going on. So what's often true about a lot of the witnesses is they defied that sort of Cold War era uh, expectation of behavior. You know, there were Black activists. There were female activists like Anna Morgan. So for women like Anna Morgan, she, re she really went against the kind of feminine mystique of the era, uh, as many of the female witnesses did. They did not sort of abide by the kind of normal activities that women were supposed to do in the 50s, right? Stay at home, take care of their husbands, have kids. Uh, she was an activist. So she was interesting for a lot of reasons. You know, this is the late 1950s when the Morgans start getting all tied up, and the Red Scare is brewing at that point, for sure. There's a small mention in a American Legion newspaper about the Morgans bookstore and Anna's communist affiliations. It's printed in Columbus. Citizens began picketing the bookstore downtown. The article listed a property on West 10th on the Ohio State campus that the Morgans owned. It was not their actual house. It was a rental property, but a mob of residents went to the house, saw nobody was there, broke in, pillaged it. They threw all the furniture out on the lawn, all the books, cheers from the crowd. Again, it's not where the Morgans lived, but this mob grows, the police show up, they just stand by and smoke cigarettes and watch. No one is arrested. The news of the mob led the Ohio Historical and Archaeological Society board, the board that I now sit on, they decide to fire Dick Morgan for having ties to the Communist Party. Dick Morgan heard this, so he's fired on his way to, to work on the radio. They didn't even tell him the board would backtrack and try not to fire him or get him to resign. It was a big mess. Uh, as a current member of the board, I want to apologize to the Morgans and the Rubios, uh, and a Rubio originally. But yeah, I do apologize for our Cold War era board. I promise we're a much more open-minded group these days. But the reason we share this story is there's little things like this would happen. You lose your job like Richard Morgan, who by all accounts is one of the best archaeologists the state of Ohio ever had. A mob tears up your house. And in Anna Morgan's case, you get hauled in front of the Ohio Un-American Activities Commission and then charged with contempt of the legislature for invoking your Fifth Amendment rights. Morgan was curator of what, what was once the Ohio State Museum, which is the forerunner of the Ohio History Center um, uh, and Connection, which we have today. But he was, a, he was an academic, um, but also active in, in activities. And, and so he became part of, uh, associated with Anna Morgan as well. Um, and so both of them were, were brought into the, the net, if you will, of the, of the OUX investigations. Um, she was a militant. She was a very strong member of the Communist Party in Columbus. And by all accounts that we have of her, she was a real leader in Franklin County in an era when, again, women weren't really seen, right, to be strong political leaders, to have political thought. Um, so she was co-chair of the county party even uh, in Franklin County. And she often was using her home, right, to have meetings and to, to, to do those things. So she was, um, she was called before the committee and she refused to testify. And she ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court with her case uh, eventually was overturned in her favor. Number 463, Anne H. Morgan, appellant versus the state of Ohio. 
Mrs. Fury. Morgan v. Ohio, the case of Raley v. Ohio, find their way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1959. Raley was also found guilty and did time for refusing to answer questions about communistic or subversive activities in Ohio. Anna Morgan's represented by two women attorneys, including Akron, Ohio lawyer Thelma Furry. The Morgans went broke paying for their defense, their appeals, and ultimately getting themselves an afternoon in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. We talked to our guest Greg Wilson about Akron attorney Thelma Furry, attorney in the case of Morgan v. Ohio. And after Greg, we'll hear an actual clip of Thelma before Chief Justice Earl Warren's court in 1959. She does include quite a bit of Anna Morgan's statement that she made in 1952 challenging the validity of the Ohio Un-American Activities Committee. I'll tell you, Alex, another really interesting character is, is Thelma Furry. She's an Akron uh, person. She's a lawyer, uh, represented a lot of these witnesses at the hearings. Um, and Morgan's attorney was actually also a woman, Anna G- Ann Ginger, who's another uh, activist lawyer. You know, Furry, and her name is Furry. It's F-U-R-R-Y, Thelma Furry. So although Fury would probably be a better name because she seemed to be a, a fierce advocate for civil liberties. Uh, again, from Akron, uh, she represented several of the witnesses at the OUAC hearings, and she ended up being a witness herself because of her associations in the Communist Party from the 1930s. So she was a member of the National Association of Women Lawyers. She chaired their uh, their Civil Rights Committee. She was also a member of the American Women for Peace. So she was a real kind of left liberal activist in this era. Uh, she was the attorney uh, for a lot of these people. And again, she, like others, defied this whole, this whole feminine mystique in this era. Um, what Furry did was uh, she had been threatened with disbarment for her activities. Um, she was not disbarred, as it turned out. And she was instrumental in the defense of uh, several witnesses who had come before the committee in Ohio, including a man by the name of Talmadge Raley of Cincinnati. Um, he appealed his indictment for contempt, like many did. And his case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which was finally reversed in 1959. And Furry, again, was, was arguing the case before the Supreme Court. So I think she's, to me, a really fascinating figure. Mrs. Fury. If the court please. This matter is before this court for the second time. You must remember that this year was 1952. This was the year that Mrs. Morgan was called before this commission. Otherwise, you are required under the law to answer the questions that are put to you by this commission, which is a commission constituted by the people of Ohio to make a study of communism and un-American activities in Ohio. At the beginning of this session of Mrs. Morgan's, she presented a prepared statement to the commission, in which she stated the following. This committee was paid to investigate so-called un-American and subversive activities, but in all these months, it has failed to state what it considers un-American or subversive. Who am I, you may ask? She answers I, as with her statement, I am just an average American housewife. I now present my sincere beliefs and let this committee and all interested citizens who pay this committee judge me. Because this committee conducts its hearings like an inquisition with no rules of evidence, its victims are denied the rights which they would have in a duly constituted court. 
Therefore, I must claim the protection of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States and remain silent before this committee. Good evening. Tonight, See It Now devotes its entire half hour to a report on Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, told mainly in his own words and pictures. 1954 was McCarthy's Waterloo. That was Edward R. Murrow, the famous newsman that you heard there. He finally bit off more than he could chew. It begins with McCarthy taking on the U.S. Army. Even today, still one of the most revered institutions in American life. President Eisenhower had enough of his antics, especially once he started calling army generals pinkos, communist sympathizers, and spies. And McCarthy becomes the target of an entire episode of Edward R. Murrow's CBS News magazine show, See It Now. Murrow is one of the most trusted names on TV. He's just ripping cigarettes on air at his trademark sign-off of good night and good luck. The popular history says that Murrow took down McCarthy, or is a huge moment in his downfall. But that's a pretty simplistic take. Even if it makes for a good George Clooney movie like 2005's Good Night and Good Luck, we play you Murrow's closing monologue that night of March 9, 1954. Struck a chord with so many viewers. And then our Larry Tai, the guest and talented author of Demagogue, weighs in on Murrow's effect on McCarthy's downfall and another journalist that really should get even more credit. We love a simple story of... Here's the dragon, Joe McCarthy, and Edward R. Murrow is the dragon slayer. And there was a wonderful movie called Good Night and Good Luck that told the story of Edward R. Murrow bringing down Joe McCarthy. But Edward R. Murrow himself was the first to acknowledge that he came to the game late. He had incredibly damning TV reports on McCarthy, but it wasn't until late 53, early 54, when McCarthy had been doing his damage for nearly four years. And he was in a way like Eisenhower. A lot of people credit today Eisenhower for bringing down McCarthy, and he did help bring down McCarthy, but he just did it much too late. The real hero in the press was a guy that nobody's ever heard of named Andrew Drew Pearson who was at that time in the 1950s, the best read columnist in America and the most listened to radio commentator. And Pearson, almost immediately after the Wheeling speech, started taking on Joe McCarthy. And for his troubles, he was one night physically attacked by McCarthy in the cloakroom of a fancy uh, Washington supper club. And if it hadn't been for a Quaker peacemaker named Richard Nixon, who stepped yeah. between the two of them, Pearson would have been pummeled. Pearson was later verbally pummeled by McCarthy in the Senate to the point where Pearson's lead radio sponsor backed out because he became so controversial for taking on this sainted Joe McCarthy. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof, and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. And remember that we are not descended 
from fearful men. Not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. McCarthy and his sidekick Roy Cohn get into it with the Army over the treatment of David Shine, Cohn's friend, and maybe more than that. He's conscripted in the Army, stationed at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. Cohn still needed Shine to work on committee matters for McCarthy. He's constantly arguing with the Army superiors to get him more leave in Washington and New York City, and he gets contentious, and Cohn is threatening to ruin all their careers as the Army pushes back. This all gets back to the White House, and Eisenhower sees his chance to set up this battle between McCarthy and the Army, a battle that McCarthy walks into blinded by his own power and arrogance. Think about how many men had served in the Army during the war, the short nine years before. The same army that beat the Nazis, beat the Japanese, saved the world. McCarthy makes a stink about an army dentist who was promoted solely as a matter of course due to his service time, Irving Perez, an army dentist at Fort Monmouth who was a communist. No doubt about that. Was he a spy? He's a dentist at the base. But that's all the communist sympathizing McCarthy needs. We'll play for you a speech of him recanting to a crowd of supporters how he dressed down a general's wicker about the dentist in a hearing. Zucker wasn't even the one who, who promoted him, but and we'll follow up with our guest Larry Ty setting up the infamous Army McCarthy hearings of 1954. Then being a traitor to the country as part of the communist conspiracy. Are you enjoying this abuse of the general? <laughs> <laughs> uh, question, do you think stealing $50 is more serious than being a traitor to the country as part of the communist conspiracy. Answer, that, sir, was not my decision. I said, then, General, you should be removed from any command. Any man who has been given the honor of being promoted to general and who says, I will protect another general who protects communists is not fit to wear that uniform, General. Joe McCarthy was charging that the Army was a hotbed of spies, and especially a base called Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. And he basically said, um, this is as bad as it was in the State Department, it's worse in the Army. And the Army was firing back by saying, this really isn't about the Army versus McCarthy. This is about the fact that Joe McCarthy wanted Roy Cohn's young associate and maybe young lover, a guy named G. David Shine, to stay out of the army, and then when he was in the army to get special treatment. And each side was leveling charges at the other. The US Senate said, we can't figure this out. We need to really investigate. So they did what the Senate always does or what congressional bodies always do, which is punt and decide to hold a bunch of hearings. Well, these hearings, the Army McCarthy hearings, starting at the beginning of 1954 and going through that August, were the most watched hearings in American history pre-Watergate. The hearings are broadcast during the day on TV. Housewives are watching. Businessmen are listening to the radio at work. What really serves to bring down McCarthy is himself. 
people aren't just hearing the 30-second soundbite on the nightly news. They're seeing and listening to McCarthy spew his venom, his baseless charges, day after day. And frankly, people are turned off by it. Here he is bickering with Missouri Democrat Stuart Symington uh, during the Army McCarthy hearings. McCarthy nicknamed him Sanctimonious Stew. Our friend Sanctimonious Stew was advising, McCarthy, I resent that reference in my first name. You better go to a psychiatrist. You're not fooling anyone. You're not fooling anyone, Mr. Symington. You're not fooling anyone. I have offered to go before any committee, do anything you ask. If I can just get you to come down here and take the oath so we can get the answers to some questions. Now, you're not you're not fooling anyone at all. Senator, I'm sure of that. Senator, let me tell you something. The chair believes that uh, we the American understand. people have had a look at you for six weeks. You're not fooling anyone either. And people tuned in because it was a captivating spectacle. They started out the hearings believing that Joe McCarthy was their champion. And the Gallup polls showed that a full 50% of Americans thought that Joe McCarthy was doing a swell job which made him the second most popular public figure in America, trailing only Dwight Eisenhower. But by the end of those hearings, they had watched Joe McCarthy, instead of looking like this great hero, looking like a town bully. And by the end of the hearings, his popularity had sunk from 50% to 34%. And there's a moment near the, the end of the hearings where McCarthy is finally exposed as the bully he was. He'd met his match in the Army's chief counsel, Joseph Welch, older, quick-witted adversary. He sparred for weeks with McCarthy. Welch and Cohn had agreed, before this all started, that Welch wouldn't bring up questions surrounding how Cohn had avoided military service under pretty dubious means, and that McCarthy wouldn't bring up a young lawyer from Welch's firm named Fred Fisher, who had worked for the National Lawyers Guild in Boston, kind of like an ACLU, an activist progressive lawyer organization that defended some very liberal causes. But McCarthy just can't help himself. And he attacks Fred Fisher, who's not there to defend himself. And you can see Roy Cohn during these hearings. He's cringing as McCarthy goes on and on about this you know, suspected communist attorney that works in Welch's firm. Cohn knows it's a dead end and potentially could expose his past of getting out of the army. Welch delivers a line that the public and the press would grab onto he says, have you no decency, sir? It's still the most famous line from those hearings. These things had been swinging against McCarthy. The hearings had been for weeks. Democrats, moderate Republicans, and the full force of the U.S. Army and the White House was finally enough to topple the famous demagogue of the 20th century. And when he lost this public backing, he also lost the Senate backing. Senators and a president who were not courageous enough to stand up to him when he was so popular were quick to jump on the bandwagon. And at the end of 1954, the Senate censured him and Joe McCarthy, while he lived on and served, he was essentially politically dead from that moment on. Mr. Welch, sir, uh, with great respect, uh, I work for the committee here. Uh, they know how we go about handling situations of communist infiltration and failure to act on FBI information about communist infiltration. And may I add my small voice, sir, and say whenever you know about a subversive or a communist or a spy, please hurry. Will you remember those words? Uh, may, may I say that uh, Mr. Welsh talks about this being cruel and reckless. 
He was just baiting. He has been baiting Mr. Cohen here for hours, requesting that Mr. Cohen, before sundown, get out of any department of the government, anyone who is serving the communist cause. Now, I just give this man's record, and I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member, as early as 1944. Senator, I may we not finish. drop this? We know finish. he belongs to the lawyer's guild. And Mr. Cohn nods his head at me. I did you, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cohn. No, sir. I meant to do you no personal injury. No. And if I did, I no. beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Well, let's, let's You've let's done see. enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? McCarthy loses his committee assignments. Papers stop covering him entirely. Senators ignore him. All of his initiatives, altogether, the country had moved on from the Red Scare. They had moved on from Joseph McCarthy. The divisiveness of it all, dividing the country. People were no longer worried that their neighbor was a secret communist. You know, going back to his speech in Wheeling, he made these huge accusations. Could never back him up. The big lie of 205 State Department communists he made that night in the Ohio River in 1950. He never handed over that list. There was no list. And he wrote his fame and the fear of Americans to the top of the political world. And his downfall was almost as fast as his rise. McCarthy would be dead from alcoholism in three short years after the Army McCarthy hearings. Larry Ty was given access to amazing new sources of information on Senator McCarthy. That access and his incredible writing is why Demagogue is the essential book on McCarthyism. He talks to us about those new papers and McCarthy's death. The, there were three kinds of papers that I had access to that people hadn't before. The first were the 9,000 pages of transcripts of closed door hearings that McCarthy held. And those had in fact been released by Susan Collins and Senator Carl Levin of Michigan uh, a number of years before, but nobody had taken a deep dive into them. And those showed Joe McCarthy unhinged. It showed that when he kicked out the press and the public, there was no controlling him in those closed door hearings. A second set of papers were ones that historians and biographers had been waiting for for 60 years. They were all the thousands of boxes of personal and professional papers that McCarthy's widow left to his alma mater, Marquette University of Milwaukee, when she, just before she died. And she left them with a proviso that they would become public either when their daughter said they would become public or when the daughter died. Well, the daughter was alive and well when I was writing. She had always been saying no. And for some reason, totally unknown to me, she said, yes, and certainly if you knew me, you would know it's not because I'm charming, <laughs> but maybe I was very, persistent, or maybe I don't know what the reason, but those papers showed everything from his love letters to his wife, to his uh, extraordinary collection of documents that had in big red letters stamped 
the words top secret from the FBI, from the CIA, and others. So these were the smoking guns of just who had leaked what to Joe McCarthy and what he was really like looking behind the curtain. There was one last trove of papers that I was shocked to get, and those were Joe McCarthy's medical records. Yeah. And the government provides that after 50 years, if somebody's a public enough figure, they can release their medical files, but they almost never do that. And Bethesda Naval Hospital sent me nearly a thousand pages of his medical records. And those showed something that I think was extraordinary in terms of explaining who Joe McCarthy was and why he did what he did. They showed that he was an alcoholic. They showed that after his censure, he was drinking the equivalent of a fifth of whiskey a day. And they showed that he died not of the acute hepatitis that the coroner told us and that the press reported, but that he died of alcohol poisoning. McCarthy was dead at age 48, drank himself to death. Greg Wilson, our, our guest, he tells us about the end of OUAC, the Ohio on American Activities Committee, which also stalls out in 1954 with the downfall of McCarthy. Thanks again to Greg. Check out his great book, Ohio, The History of the Buckeye State. Uh, we look forward to having him on future episodes. The OUAC, the, the committee in Ohio, ended in 1954, and that's also around that time when Joseph McCarthy is kind of running his course in terms of his investigations. He famously lashed out against the army that year, and it ended up backfiring. And at that point, I think the, the Republican Party, the, the fear of communism, all of that had sort of faded. So the, the Ohio story, I think, goes along with that timeline as well. They had done their work. They had passed legislation. Uh, they had committed to extending the investigations permanently through the attorney general. So at that point, the things they had called been called to do had finished. Um, it's also, I think, at that point by 1954, that that communist fear had sort of run its course. The Korean War was over. Um, you know, the investigations had uncovered a lot of communists, um, had smeared a lot of people, of course, in, in that net. And I think by then, uh, things, had, things had finished. You know, the partisan politics over communism by then had, had ebbed, if not, if not finished. In the spring of 2017, Donald Trump is said to have blurted out in a meeting with his advisors rhetorically, asking while upset about Jeff Sessions as attorney general, recusing himself from the Russia investigation. And he says, where's my Roy Cohn? Trump and Cohn had actually met in New York City nightclub in 1973, began working together. Roy Cohn was as tough as they came in the world of New York politics. He represented mob bosses, politicians, and he was willing to do anything to win, as we saw in these McCarthy hearings. He passed that along to the young real estate mogul in the 70s and 80s. Roy Cohn would die in, in 1986, I think, from AIDS, um, still denying that he was a homosexual all the way to the end. There's a great new documentary about Cohn and McCarthy and Cohn and Donald Trump called Where's My Roy Cohn? We talk one final time with Larry Ty about that connection to the former president. Some of your listeners will see a connection between Joe McCarthy and Donald Trump. Others will dispute that. But there was a flesh and blood connection that is indisputable. And that connection is that Roy Cohn, who we've talked about, who was Joe McCarthy's protege, later was Donald Trump's 
tutor, a young Donald Trump was getting into the cutthroat world of New York real estate, and his father, Fred Trump, understood that Donald needed some tutoring. So he went to the number one fixer and political operative in New York, Roy Cohn, an aging lawyer, and Cohn came in and passed on to Trump every lesson about hardball politics that he had learned at the feet of Joe McCarthy. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joseph McCarthy. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to buy that book. We talked to Larry just about, it's a fantastic book. We talked to him what it's like to release a big-time book like this during the pandemic. The book comes out in July of 2020, uh, and we talked to Larry about what that was like as an author. Had signed up a week before the 2016 election to write a biography of Barack Obama. The week after the election, I switched to Joe McCarthy, worked on it for two and a half years, and it came out last summer. Yeah, in July. Um, what's it like releasing a book during the, the pandemic? It's got to be not quite as fun. I mean, this, this is a huge book. You'd be on doing all the, the national tours and you'd be on the road. And uh, It's been different, right? It has been different. The good news is that I spoke to at least two to three times more audiences than I would have otherwise. Libraries and museums and everybody was desperate, were desperate for some sort of programming. <laughs> and the audiences were two to three times larger than I've ever had before. They ranged from 100 to four or 500. The bad news was it was half as much fun not being there in person. Yeah. So when you're sitting in your study, you can do endless talks and podcasts and TV and radio interviews. Um, but Rather than sitting there with Judy Woodruff on the PBS NewsHour, I was sitting in my study and she was sitting in hers and we were doing it via Zoom. And it's just not as much fun that way. Thanks again to our guests today, Greg Wilson uh, and Larry Ty. I implore you to go buy Demagogue. It's on Audible as well. I, I listened to it and, and bought the actual uh, hardcover. And special thanks again to our friends from the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. They've got a history page with a number of great shows, including this one. You can listen to all our past episodes on there. Uh, they've been awesome to work with. Uh, and again, rate and review the show. iTunes, anywhere you listen. Uh, we would love to just take 45 seconds uh, to give us a five-star rating or just tell us, you know, drop us a line on what you think about the show. Uh, and we'll read some of those reviews on the air. We always do. Don't forget, share our episodes on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can find us at Ohio. V the World podcast on Instagram and Ohio V the World on Twitter. Uh, we're on all the socials and, and feel free to share Ohio V the World with your friends, uh, your real friends and your internet friends. Word of mouth is still the best way uh, that I find out about great podcasts. So 
thanks again, guys. We will be back with episode three. Really looking forward to that one, which will be a 10th anniversary of a crazy event that happened here in the state of Ohio. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Ohio View the World. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.